Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And in, in part, uh, Nia, the reason why I'm good is we get to discuss as part of our continuing series on federal government executive branch departments. The name, uh, the, the, the acronym of this department is also a movie. Yes. And that's where I was going. It was. Uh, in, in, look in at a, us. It's like twins separated at birth. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel sorry for you. Um, <laughs> Um, and, and for listeners, uh, if you can't guess uh, what department we are referencing, um, I will just go ahead and tell you the name of the movie is HUD, um, starring one of my favorite actors, uh, Paul Newman. I was going to okay. say, wasn't that Paul Newman? Yes. Oh, um, so handsome. Um, um, and and, and, by the and way, such a fabulous career. Uh, and, and, and by the way, uh, a, a complete digression. Um, uh, uh, a memoir, uh, 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 in part written by Paul Newman, has just been released about his life. Oh, um, okay. Um, and it's got a great title, uh, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. I just love oh, it. I just cool. love that title. Okay. Uh, well, and, you know, he found great love early on, Joanne Woodward, and they were together for their whole adult lives. And and that was his second marriage. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, that was his second marriage. Yes. So Cool Hand Luke and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and, and The Color and, of Money. And my and all-time favorite movie, okay. The Accused. No, that's no. with Judy Foster. Oh, my bad. The Verdict. The Verdict. Thank yes. you. Uh, I knew the, it was a law thing. Yeah, and it, it, uh, which was directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, a great director, but I we digress. Yes, right? yes, we could talk about we could do an entire episode on Paul Newman, but we won't. But we um, won't because that's not part of our department series, and this is so the <laughs> Department of Housing and Urban Development HUD. Correct. Right. Yes. And when and, do we get HUD? Ah, uh, okay. Uh, in uh, a time period that you and I have discussed at length, either tangentially. Um, or uh, uh, a rather f a specific focus. Um, it was created officially uh, September 9th, 1965, and it was part of President Johnson's what program, Nia? The Great Society. Yes, the Great Society, yes. I wonder what Johnson would do with our society right now. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, but it's actually not technically... I mean, 1965 is when you get HUD, but a whole bunch of the stuff that was that HUD is made up of is older than that, right? Like it's. Oh yeah, HUD is, is much like um, Homeland Security, in that the bulk of Homeland Security uh, was is other agencies. <laughs> yeah, was composed of already existing agencies. Right, they got so, moved into. Oh well, you guys all do the same thing here. Let's stick you over here. Yeah. So for HUD. Okay. Um, basically, HUD consolidated five existing independent federal housing and community development agencies. Um, and those were the Federal Housing Administration, 
which again, listeners, you're probably not going to be surprised to learn that the FHA was actually created during the New Deal in 1934 in response to the Great Depression. Okay. Um, yeah, and it still exists. It still does exist. Okay. In fact, my first home loan, okay, was an FHA loan. Yeah, a lot was... of people's first, the whole point of the FHA is first time buyers, right? It's, it's yes. not, yep. it's to get people into houses because the theory is that um, the American dream is home ownership. Yeah, that's part of uh, the American dream. And, and again, from Congress's perspective, if you own a home, you are less, less likely to do crazy stuff because you got a mortgage okay, that you have to pay. Well, and you're more rooted in the community. The community you're you're more rooted probably job. in the school system. Yes, right. Right, because you're likely to have children. And if you have children, then they're in, they're in all the public. Yeah, so okay. I, I think it, it – it, and you're less likely to just pick up and move from one place to another. That's right. You know, let's encourage Americans to, you know, put down put, roots. Put yeah, there. You go. That was that was that was that was the axiom I was, I was looking for. Put down those roots. Yeah, okay. that's yep. what they told us when we were kids. Put down roots. Okay. Uh, the other My parents four, didn't listen to that. We moved all over the place, but <laughs> but I think that's unusual. I think most people did put try to put down roots. Oh hey, um, uh, I mean, your your parent your mom still lives in her same they, house, they, right? They, yep. Uh, yeah. they, they bought the house uh, two weeks before I was born, and she still. So lives there you there. go. Right. Yep. So yep. that's she did put down roots. Yep. The other four um, uh, were the Public Housing Administration, which was also uh, created in 1937. Can I um, can I just comment about that? Mm -hmm. I did not, I guess, I know this is going to sound bananas, so just work with me here for a second. I don't think that I realized that we had public housing in 1937, that we had public housing that early. But oh, it yeah. makes I, sense because people are moving to the city because of industrialization. And of yes. course, there would be, there would need to be public housing in addition to private housing. And by public housing, we mean um, housing for low uh low lower income. rent right for lower income folk and i guess i just didn't even think about the fact that that would even be a thing uh, for some reason i guess i thought that was part of the mar modern administrative state not the 1937 not to 1930s yeah, which well, i guess in your world is the modern modern administrative <laughs> state but that was the, but that's part of the creation right you know and again you know Nia and I, you and i have talked about this um uh the Great Depression was so all-encompassing that the Roosevelt administration was like kind of sort of cooking spaghetti for the first time, right? You know, they were trying to figure out- Throw it against the wall and see what sticks. sticks right? Because they didn't know, right? Right. You know, listeners, the United States had next to no uh, safety net, okay? for uh, Americans that were poor, uh, that were struggling, et cetera. So, I mean, we were kind of sort of doing this on the fly and in the, 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 the conditions in the Great Depression were so horrific, okay? That, you know, you know, one week, you know, they were trying, you know, public housing. The next week, you know, 
you know, they're, you know, you know, two years before they created Social Security and they didn't know they Social Security was going to work. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and I'm, I would argue that if we had a worldwide depression now, we might be in the same situation. Yes. Because it's so difficult to predict what what's going to happen when something like that happens. Well, I, mean, I also it, didn't realize that um, that Fannie Mae is as old as it is. Yeah, Fannie Mae is the shorthand for the Federal National Mortgage Association. F-N-M-A, which is Fannie Mae. I didn't, yes. I never put together that it was an acronym for something. Yeah, and, um, and, and again, that was created in 1934. And again, it was in response to the Great Depression because they wanted to create a secondary market for home mortgages. What if banks many of which were foreclosed in the early years of the Great Depression, no longer could support home mortgages. So the federal government stepped in to create another pool or pot of money that Americans could tap into to save their homes. And not necessarily first-time buyers. That's right. Because yep. FHA is first-time, but I see. So they yep. needed something for people that already had their homes yes. and were in danger of losing them. Okay. The fourth one was the Urban Renewal Administration. And this has been probably the most controversial <laughs> of the units of HUD. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, and then the fifth one is the Community Facilities Administration. And this is your garden variety. Nobody knows about this <laughs> federal agency. But their basic idea, their basic purpose is to create community development programs. Okay. They do so, grants, they yep, give money. Yep. City planning grants, um, uh, student and employee housing aid for ho uh, hospitals and colleges and mass transit. So before the Department of Transportation was created, you I mean, had to have somebody who would help with roads and rail and buses and trolleys. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, and streetcars. Um, yeah. Okay. It, 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 again, so that's it, why later we're going to get transportation because that gets so big. That's I'm right. Sure, yes. Right. That that somebody says, "Dang, we need to break that off and make it its own thing." So, yep. what's marvelous is is that as we have done these departments, we have seen it was something you mentioned early on that as the country changes and as there's demographic changes, but also as there's physical location changes from rural to city and all the, then there's all these things that have to get developed, and that's how we end up with labor, and that's how we end up with commerce. And that's how we end up with health and human services, right? That's how we end up with all these. And now uh, later on transportation, but now HUD, right? Like that's how we end up is, you know what we need? We need a department that'll do the following things. And, and we're going to talk so about at some point, we're going to have the Department of Inter-Alien Species Management or something <laughs> yeah, when right. we finally have and when we're finally visited by ETs. <laughs> yes, right. It will okay. somebody will say we need a department for that. Yeah, you know, somebody in the federal government will go, you know, uh, testify uh, at a hearing in front of Congress or members of Congress will ask questions that, again, we're, we tend to be very critical of members of Congress. But members of Congress in many ways are just like garden variety 
Americans, right? What do you mean we, you know, we need a docking station for <laughs> extraterrestrial, okay, um, um, uh, 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 spacecraft, okay? Right. Well, if we're going to invite them to go ahead and perhaps relocate to the United States of blah, 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 we need docking stations for their spacecraft, <laughs> right. right? Right. And we have invited them, by the way. We sent out a yes, right. We sent out a satellite in the what 70s, 80s, the Voyager. <laughs> yeah. It's right. like, hey, show up at Earth. We've got, you know, we'll put a what is it they used to say in the Australian commercials? We'll put another shrimp on the Barbie. Barbie, that's right. Uh, yes. um, okay. Anyway, yeah, so we'll a lot go. of this is under FDR because FDR is dealing with the the depression and he's also trying to make the new deal right he's also trying to create the system where the the um middle and lower income folk in the united states have some sort of way to achieve and move up or not move up but move into a more stable financial situation through housing, through um, social security, through those kinds of programs, right? Because he's basically trying to keep people out of falling out of the system and... Yeah, because prior to the Great Depression, most safety net programs in the United States, and, and Nia, you and I have talked about this, most safety net programs were either at the state level, but not very many, or through nonprofits. I was going to say churches mostly. Okay. But they just didn't have the capacity. So even if they had the will, right. they just didn't have the capacity to deal with the sheer volume of need. Oh, in, in the depression. I yeah. see. Okay. Right. But once you start making that commitment and you start, you know, you know, saving people, right? I mean, that's the idea of a safety net, right? Okay, once you start saving them, okay, not surprisingly, many in government are like, we could do better, right? We can make sure that this doesn't happen in the future, right? Um, and, and again, I mean, if you think about, for instance, the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, right? I mean, the basic idea was you got to give Americans hope, right? You got to give them an, op you know, they hear about the American dream, the Great Depression hits, okay? Do you pretty much want an entire generation of Americans to conclude that they'll never own their own home? Right, no, because okay, because if it's so woven into the fabric of what you think being an American is and yes. being a prosperous American, yes, then what you're saying is no prosperity for you. And back then, homes were still considered one of the primary investments that one generation could give to the next. Which is why redlining is such a terrible idea. That's right. Because it, it limits that for communities of color. They, or, they struggle to pass or on. Or religious minorities, right? I mean, right. remember, redlining was not only used to go ahead and discriminate against people of color, it was also used to discriminate against Jews, Catholics. Okay, you know we don't we don't want those people buying living in homes. our neighborhoods. Yeah, in our neighborhoods. Right. right? Okay. 
and those were worthless, which allowed people to build less wealth to pass on to their children. That's right. Okay. Um, but I mean, FDR, this was key. I mean, in the development of HUD, I mean, we've already talked about it. You have the National Housing Act in 1934. You have the Housing Act of 1937, okay, which is where you get housing authority for um, low-income uh, housing, okay? Um, then you get amendments in 1938, okay? And that's where you get the creation of Fannie Mae. Um, you get an executive order in 1942. I mean, by, by the early 1940s, FDR stopped going to Congress Okay, in the finest <laughs> presidential tradition, and he just started writing executive issuing orders. executive orders. Based and this on, number is nine zero seven zero. That yes. would be nine thousand executive, executive orders. orders just in Roosevelt's. Okay, so by nineteen forty two, you're now talking about his third term, right? Right. So, so 12 his, years. Yeah, right. <laughs> 9,000 executive orders. That's a person who cannot deal with Congress, like who just can't get Congress on board. Yes. I mean, because again. And he can't it, get the courts on board. And we know he can't get the courts on board because he had talked about padding the court. Yeah. So, right. so, I mean, like, so he's like, you know what I'll do? I'll just pull out my pen and write this executive order. So when I have students ask me, Nia, you know, you know, the moderate, you know, recent presidents, okay, Obama, Trump, Biden, they, they seem to use executive orders quite a bit. I'm like, <laughs> they're actually following in a well-established presidential tradition or practice, right? But I mean, if you're talking about 9,000 in 12 years, yeah, and in in you're you're not talking. You're talking. Well, I can't do the math in my head, but like eight hundred a year. Well, I'm not it, sure we've had a a president in memory, okay, who's in, gone quite that far. In, in remember too, um, we had our colleague Bill Newman uh, speak with us on this podcast. Um, uh, the uh, the the name of the uh, that particular episode was "Down with Broccoli," because that was the hypothetical he used, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now most, you know, most executive orders are non-controversial and they have very little substance attached, right? Yeah, they're mostly benign. Yeah, right. But, but then occasionally. Yeah, right. But if you're, you know, <laughs> you're basically using an executive order that creates the, okay, just listen to what that executive order created, Okay. The National Housing Agency, the Federal Housing Administration, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, the Home Owners Loan Corporation, United States Housing Authority, Defense Housing, okay, for basically fighting the war, okay, the Farm Security Administration, the Defense Homes Corporation, the Federal Loan Administration, and the Division of Defense Housing Coordination. All were consolidated with that one executive order. <laughs> that's, that's pretty handy, really. That's good work for one executive order, right? <laughs> Who do you work for? I'm not sure. But we were just consolidated in executive order 9070, <laughs> okay? 
And again, and so, back then, executive orders, okay, were in hard copy. They weren't right. they weren't available, listeners, electronically, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, didn't quite have the internet yet. Yes. But then so, but uh, they became uh, three three units that we would recognize the names of, right? Yes. All yep. of that got consolidated into three units. Yes. Yep. The Federal Housing Administration the Federal Home Loan Bank Administration, and the U.S. Housing Authority. And those yes. still exist now, right? Those are- yes. yes, they do. The three, okay. Yep, yeah. So FDR took everything that was housing related. Now, it should be noted that what I suspect happened in many departments was, like for instance, defense, we need housing. Okay, well, but that should be under a housing authority, not under the defense authority. So it got moved, right, and consolidated yes, because, because I mean, you, know, the, you know, the idea of the Department of Defense and, and even those who have had prominent leadership positions in the Department of Defense have said publicly, we're good at preparing to fight wars. Right. Right. We're not so great at <laughs> at housing <laughs> at some other things. Well, and and also standards, right? You don't want different standards for different housing, which you would yes. have if they were under different agencies. Yes. So, but he was only the first president to leap into this housing question. Correct. Okay. Um, afterwards, um, Truman uh, went ahead and expanded. Uh, with the uh, Home Finance Agency. Um, and then you have the Housing Act of 1949. Uh, Truman, you know, raised the ante. The federal government was going to eradicate slums and promote community development and redevelopment programs. And we're going to get to slums uh, in, the, in the controversy yes. section, right? Because one of the ones that we mentioned before and we sort of glanced across was the Urban Renewal Administration, which, by the way, was created to direct slum clearance projects in almost 800 communities. And we're going to get to that in a little bit and how controversial, because, you know, quick, define slum, right? Like, that's a complicated, yes. anyway, and, we'll get and, to and, that. And, and, and many residents of quote-unquote slums, no matter how they were defined, okay, do not have as much political juice and capital Right. Okay. And therefore, their voices oftentimes got ignored if they were raised at all. Okay. Um, yeah. We're, we're but we'll get, get to that. It. We'll get to that in a little bit. So then we have Eisenhower. We have Eisenhower, right? So we get a couple uh, 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 more pieces. By the way, the sheer number, Nia, of laws passed in our country with the word housing in it. Right. Okay, the Housing like, Act of. Fill like, in the blank year, the Housing Act of Housing One Act book I came across went year. ahead and said that there was over 500 different pieces of legislation <laughs> just, in the 20, just in the 20th century that had the word housing in it, right? <laughs> if you want an indicator of how important housing has been. What an excellent point. Okay. Because Congress, again. They Congress, are responsive to the people. Yes. In, well, theoretically, they are responsive to the people. But, I mean, we, we could have a discussion about that, but it would require we adult beverages. We be critical beverages. of Congress for any number of reasons, but housing has been extremely important in the history of the United States, and Congress has stepped up, right? 
Yeah, and that's not just a top down. That's also a bottom up. People bottom have up, wanted. Yes. Yep. People have wanted housing acts, and the president has wanted them. So Ike has it, it, a couple. He has a couple. And by the way, the first proposal for a cabinet level department on housing and urban development actually arose in the Eisenhower administration. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, in 1957, um, uh, there was a report that was authored by New York Governor uh, Nelson Rockefeller. And, that, and this was a report uh, that was commissioned by the uh, Eisenhower administration. So in 1957 is when we get the first, if you will, public call for, at that time, a Department of Urban Affairs. Okay. A department. Of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but it was not established then. It was not established then. Right. It was okay? a few years later. Yep. Yeah. Because that's it all happened with LBJ. Now, but I like that Eisenhower um, oh, in 59, he, he has the elderly housing. The Housing Act of 1959 allows funds for elderly housing. Yes. Um, a little sad that it took 30 some years, I mean, 20 some years to get around to, oh, we should take care of old people. But it is, it, but it, it's it, also part of the federal housing is that there are um, 55 plus or 65 plus or so what we think of now as assisted living and those kinds of facilities were allowed for the funds were allowed for from the housing act of 1959 yeah i mean there's a recognition that uh, we're going to have old people yeah i mean the american population particularly after the war i mean because let's face it life expectancy uh took a hit in the united states when we participated in the war, that's one of the downsides. Okay, when nations of of, uh, okay. when nations participate in wars, right? But I mean, we had you know roughly fifteen years. Okay, now we had the Korean War. Okay, but nevertheless, okay, American life expectancy was beginning to rise. We have more right by nineteen fifty nine. You have more old people, and they're going to live longer. Yes, and so now you have to. You have to adjust for that. But the big one was LBJ, right? You have the Housing Act of 1964. Then you got the law that created HUD in 65. Okay. Can uh, we wait? Can we mention yeah. in 64 allows rehabilitation loans for homeowners? Yes. So that's if your house is old and decrepit and falling apart, you can get a loan from the government to fix it. Right? Because. Yes. Yep. And up until then, repairs were on you. Like yes. you couldn't get a loan if you didn't have the money and you couldn't get a loan for that. Too bad. You couldn't repair your house. And so he's like, you know, we ought to let people repair their homes for loans that are. And these loans, by the way, we should probably mention are all at very low interest rates. Yes. When you get a loan through FHA or when you get a loan through the through HUD or whatever, they are not at the market interest rate. No, because the government steps in and covers the difference. Right. right? They're subsidized loans in yes. order to get people into homes. Yeah. Yep. Or to fix their homes. Now, so, uh, so I like that LBJ adds a adds adds it as a 
um, yeah, a I secretary. Mean, he I mean, that elevates just, its importance. Yeah, and 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 then you get the real big one, Nia, nineteen sixty-eight, the Fair Housing Act. Ah. And this is the one that was designed to address uh, something that you mentioned a few moments ago, the infamous redlining. Um, this is the law that banned discrimination in housing. And they basically used the same phrase in the Fair Housing Act of 68 that you see in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So you're banning discrimination not only on race, but ethnicity. Country uh -huh. of national origin, okay, gender, okay, religion, and age. Okay. okay. Yes. Okay. That's excellent. Yep. yep. Go well, BJ. Yeah. I mean, you know, he'd stand over you and scare you, but it, it's it's also <laughs> okay. he also did a lot of things that we would consider to be amazingly um, equalizing. Yes. Right. He he tried to help with inequalities in the nation. Yep. Nixon, again, he made contributions in this regard. This is another one of our themes of this series. Uh, that Nixon you know, say, will surprise you. Yes, say <laughs> what you will about Nixon, but I mean, one year into office, in fact, less than one year uh, into office, uh, in an amendment to the federal government, uh, uh, of a, an amendment to a congressional appropriation bill, um, the Brooke Amendment, um, that Nixon signed, low-income families were only, uh, 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 could not, they set up a limit. Uh, low-income families only pay no more than 25% of their income for rent. So if you're in Section 8 housing, if you're yes. getting help yep. from the government to help cover yep. the cost of housing, you pay 25% and the government, 25% government, of your income Yes. And the government pays the rest, rest up to market value of whatever. That's right. Yep. Okay. That's then, amazing. Because that, I'm that, sure that before that, it, they would say, you could pay 50% of your income. Oh, that was huge. Nia, that was huge. And, and moreover, one of the last things he did before he resigned, the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974, all community development uh, grants became block grants. Okay, so there are two types of grants, categorical grants or block grants, right? Categorical grants are not liked by state and local governments because they can only be used for very specific things with strings attached. Block grants give state and local governments much more discretion on how the money is spent. Ah, we're just giving you a chunk of money. Money. And if and the follow, outcome needs to be within these parameters. That's right. And as long as you get the results that we want as the federal government for this, we're not going to delve into how you did it. That's right. Okay. Um, and this has always been one of the uh, key points of contention in regards to receiving grants from the federal government. State and local governments usually, okay, want the block grant. Right. Okay. Because each each community is different. Yeah, what and would work state, to what would work state, to engage yeah. in urban um, homesteading in Richmond would be very different than what would work to urban homesteading in Raleigh, in Washington, in New York. Those would well, all. We think different. about differences in states, right? If you're a state like Florida, 
and you get a lot of senior citizens that relocate to the state of Florida. The infamous, if you what are they called? Snowbirds. Sun? Yeah, snowbirds, right? Snowbirds. Okay. Um, you're going to want more flexibility to spend HUD money for assisted living facilities for senior citizens, okay, than perhaps a, a city like, you know, New York or Chicago that is attracting many young immigrant families, okay? Right, you need different, you need yes. to be able to use the money in different, different ways. Different ways, right? Okay. Um, uh, Carter, I mean, basically continues, right? I mean, you get urban development grants. Um, we continue funding for the elderly and um, uh, the disabled uh, Americans. Um, under Reagan, HUD wasn't really much of a priority. <laughs> um, well, he was busy ending the Cold War. Okay. Um, I um, mean, theoretically. Yeah. Bush 41, um, uh, again. Although Reagan, can we just note, um, starts bringing up the discussion of homelessness. Yes. Right. He has, it includes the creation of the, uh, sorry, the Stuart B. McKinley Homeless Assistance Act um, gives help to communities to deal with homelessness. And so at this point, we're starting to recognize in 1987 that we have a homeless problem in the United yes. States and that there needs to be someone who's in charge of dealing with that, either financially or regular regulatory or yeah, coordinating programs. And, and, right. and again, this is another example of, of, of something we've discussed throughout this podcast, Nia. Uh, uh, Americans' political memory is extremely short term, right? Right. I mean, you know, if, if you read the media, particularly if you read media, for instance, um, in large urban areas and they discuss homelessness, you know, many of the, 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 the stories are like, you know, this is a significant problem today. Uh, guys, um, <laughs> right. We've had homeless people since forever, since the United States. It's, I mean, okay. <laughs> but I mean, in regards to the federal government recognizing it as a problem, right. First recognition was, you know, nearly, you know, 40 years ago, right. With the Reagan right. administration. Exactly. Right? Um, also Reagan does something a little, what I think of as a little controversial, which is that in 88, um, the Housing and Community Development Act provides for the sale of public housing to residential management corporations. It's very much trickle-down economics. It's very much, oh, well, you know, if we let private companies manage um, we'll we'll public better, housing, we'll, we'll get, get a better product and it will, done, it will be done uh, cheaper. And I would argue that neither of those things turned out to be true. Yeah. I um, mean, public housing as managed by private corporations meant that corporations could well i mean it's kind of sort of like you know uh, private corporations running uh, prisons and jails right it's not a it's not actually a good situation it, i mean there's a lot of things that the government does that could be done more economically more efficiently but there are some things the government does that we're not going to be able to make a profit out of and we're not going to be able to do it cheaper 
we just got to write it off. Right. We have to embrace that it's an expensive thing that doesn't get that there's no way to economize. Yeah, that the government has to provide. Right. And when we and what we see with public housing is is it becomes run down and it becomes not livable in some instances, in part because if a corporation doesn't have to do something, they won't because it hurts their profit margin to do anything, right? It always costs money to do whatever you want. I want you to paint all the walls. Oh, no, we can't do that. That's going to cost $100,000 or whatever. And if you have to go ahead as a private corporation and be responsive to civil rights listed in law or the constitution, again, Nia, you've heard me say this ad nauseum, okay, um, the provision of civil rights, whether in law or the constitution, requires work, process, time, and money. Right. You just can't go ahead and say- No shortcuts. Okay, I'm just gonna make an intuitive decision. Sorry. <laughs> okay, the constitution doesn't allow you- as Does not recognize your intuition. <laughs> okay, you have to follow a process because you might be taking away somebody's life, liberty, or in this case, property. Property, right. Okay. Um, so but then we get Senior Bush. Yes, Bush 41, okay. Uh, probably the big, uh, the, the, the noteworthy uh, piece of legislation there um, was uh, the uh, uh, HOPE 6, okay, mm-hmm. uh, which is the name of the program. Um, but it was a program designed to revitalize public housing um and um you know and what flows from that is the housing and community development act of 1992 so you get a lot of money set aside um in regards to lower income and underserved housing areas rather explicitly committing fannie mae to funding that. And this is going to become part of the issue as we move into the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century is, and in particular, you see this with the Clinton administration, right? The Clinton administration in Congress in 1996, okay, wanted to raise the number of Americans who owned homes, okay? Um, And and in 1996, 66.3 Americans, okay? 66.3 million. Million Americans, okay, owned homes. And the Clinton administration wanted to raise that number, even though that was the largest number in our country's history. Because he also believed that prosperity came from Homeownership. Yep, that's right. Okay. Um, And the numbers increased in the role of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, okay, in, if you will, subsidizing homeownership increased, right? There's a narrative here, and you know where this story is going, right, Nia? Yes. Okay. Uh, Because what happened was... In the first decade of this millennium, 
the housing market in the United States, there was a bubble. Okay. Wait, so in 2000, home ownership rate reached a new record high of 67.7%. Yes. So two thirds of people in the United States, uh, two thirds of eligible folks owned a home. Yes. 71.6 million American families owned a home. Yes. Right. Biggest ever. Biggest ever. And what's that sound I hear in the in the distance? It's the rumble of thunder. Yes. Or the sound of bubbles popping. You yes. could describe it either way. Either way. Because what this created in the first decade of this millennium was an overheated housing market. What economists refer to as a bubble. Okay. Right. And, and like and like what do they call them? Ninja loans? No yeah. income, no job loans like you just had to be breathing yes and somebody would give you a loan and many for these, a house and many of these loans okay were backed by fannie mae and freddie mac okay which meant that if the person who took out the loan could not repay it who was on the hook for covering the rest of the mortgage the federal government the federal government it became a property owner yes a huge property owner okay um and at least the american version of the great recession of 2007 to 2009 okay was founded on okay the home ownership if you will industry Right, because what happens is you get a mortgage from Bank of Nia, and then I sell your mortgage as part of a package to a bunch of investors, and they look at you and they say, ah, that guy's got a good job, he's been there for 20 years, he's going to pay. So that's a, that's a prime loan. But sometimes I sell packages to investors, and they are of of what we call subprime, people who are not steadily employed or people who are underemployed for the amount of money they borrowed or whatever, whatever reason puts you into the subprime mortgage. And those were the ones that banks invested in and then couldn't get the money from people because we had a mild recession, people lost their jobs. And well, I say mild because, you know, well, it it was, in some people but... it was yeah. For some people, it was extreme, but for most people, it was relatively mild. However, we had a lot of job loss, and when people couldn't pay those mortgages, now the subprime mortgages are hanging out there. Investors are losing their money. Banks are losing their money, and everybody's panicking. Yes, and many, and, of, those, and, and many of those mortgages, okay? Were, and Polson and Bernanke are eating Tums okay, were like so they own stock in the company. Yeah, so you had two two things that happened here with the housing market. One with many of those subprime loans, okay? The federal government stepped in to basically bail out all those investors who had no business buying those mortgages, okay, right. of people who had high credit risk right. attached. High right? chance of default. Okay. But the other thing was many of the loans whether they were subprime or otherwise, Nia, were backed by the federal government. 
All right. So, and so the banks thought, oh, well, it'll never be a problem because the government will pay. And, and that's where the federal government, in some ways, actually encouraged right. bad behavior. Yep. Bad behavior by what the What could bank. I possibly lose because the government will pay? Bad behavior by the banks, but also bad behavior of many Americans, okay, who were told, sure, okay, you can afford a mortgage for a house of $350,000. On an income of $22,000 a year. Right. Really? They should, they, yeah. It was, it was a whole entire collusion problem. I mean, it that, was. And, it was and housing a, failure. Yes. It was. And bad. in part, it was from a good place, which is we want people to own homes so that they can build wealth, right? That's a good that's a good desire. Yes. But some people just cannot afford to buy a home for whatever reason. They it's beyond their means. Or they're they can't buy a home right now. Right. And the and the economic argument, I mean, there is also an economic argument to be made for the fact that some people need to rent for the market to work. Yes. And for it to work with com- competition. Some people need to rent so that housing prices aren't so low that you can't ever yes. make any money selling your house. Like there's, it's all carry on knock on effects. Yes. And, 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 and we also know this too, for the labor market to work. You some need, people have to be unemployed. One, you need some people <laughs> to be unemployed, but we also know for the labor markets to also work, we need to have a stock of rental properties so that people can change jobs and move quickly. Excellent right? point. Okay. Because if a whole bunch of Americans are locked into home mortgage loans, they can't go anywhere. Yeah, they can't go anywhere. They're less likely to go ahead and say, hey, this is a really cool job opportunity, but I'm going to have to move across the country. But if they're locked into, you know, a 30-year mortgage, okay, where they just, you know, renovated the kitchen or the basement, they're less likely to go ahead and do that, which means employers have less people to pick from. Right. Or alternatively, what they need on the other end is a rental property they can rent for six months while they sell yes. the house in wherever they were. Yes. Right. That used to happen to my parents all the time. My father would go ahead Yes. To whatever new city it was and rent. And my mother would stay behind and sell the house we were in. Yes. Right. And then once he, we got there, we would buy another house. Like they would buy another house. They, they did but that you sort need of, to have that kind turnover of turnover thing. Yeah. You yep. need to have that kind of flexibility in the housing market. Okay. And what happened in the first decade of this millennium? Okay. Okay. That flexibility, that slack, okay, just dried up. Okay, just dried up completely, right? But let's talk about some criticisms, Nia, of uh, HUD, okay? Again, I think listeners, you probably have picked up, Nia and I are generally very supportive of many programs that ended up being the foundation of HUD. But there have have been some criticisms. And I think we should be also make a, a an actual bold out there statement saying <laughs> not bold but we 
we also support home ownership. We are not suggesting yes. that people should not own homes. And in yes. fact, home ownership, as we have said multiple times, is a great way to build asset. And we would like to see that fairly and equitably spread across the American population. It is, sure. yes. it is not always done that way. And that's part of the criticisms here. Yes. So um, uh, I want to, can I start with the first one? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So Section 8, Section 8 housing, Section 8 refers to a section in the code. Me. Right. Yeah. In, 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 in the, the federal, federal code. code. As it relates to uh, HUD and various, if you will, programs related to housing. And the Section 8 is the shortening of that. I mean, that's what people call it colloquially. Yes. And it's basically for low-income folk yes. to get into housing. Yes. And, um, but the part of the problem with that program is that there can be a long time that you, that you fall out of housing before you can get a, a Section 8 voucher. And so people end up couch surfing, sleeping in hotels, sleeping in their cars, sleeping in tents, trying to get into Section 8 housing. And Section 8 housing, what we mean is, is, is both government and private that accept a Section 8 voucher, which as we mentioned before, pays a certain amount of the money that's due, and then the renter pays a certain amount of the money that's due. So if your rent is $1,000, you pay $250, and the government pays $750. That's right. And some housing won't accept Section 8 voucher because they think they're only going to get the three quarters. They don't think they're going to get the the 25 percent yeah the individual responsibility they're not going to get that money from the individual yeah and so they worry that they're not going to get the full rent so they don't they don't accept section eight and you'll find if you call in lots of apartment complexes even here in richmond and you say do you accept section eight they just immediately say no yeah it's kind of sort of like certain doctors won't participate in either medicaid or medicare yeah and it's super frustrating because yeah, the demand, by the way, for Section 8 vouchers has always outstripped supply, okay? It, it always has. Right, there's because, always more people who want housing yeah. than... Yeah, and, and, and that's one of the criticisms. The federal government has created this program, okay, and historically, they've never funded it, okay, to, mat to match the need or demand, Right. Um, and then it leads to, Nia, as you pointed out, all kinds of, you know, behaviors, okay, that cause other problems, right? So if you can't get the Section 8 voucher and you live, for instance, and you have a job in San Francisco, okay, you're not going to be able to afford an apartment. Yeah. Okay. So not if you're low income, there's no. So way. therefore, you got a tough choice: Do I give up the job that I like, that I may have always wanted, or do I, or am I homeless? I mean, what a choice! Or do I live so far away? Yes, that I'm three hour commute in every day and three hour commute back. Like yes, 
and you used, it sounds ridiculous to listeners who are used to commuting 20 minutes but there are people who in California and around DC who commute an hour and a half each way like that's not an unusual thing and in some place like San Francisco you're talking about a commute that's two hours at least to find what I think of as reasonably priced housing <laughs> but then again I have a skew on reasonably priced housing because but I would like to um like sometimes HUD screws up the amount that they will pay like the don't they set yeah an amount yeah. that they'll pay for in a voucher like if you lived in San Francisco and they said well your voucher can only be $1500 that's not market reasonable in San Francisco $1500 wouldn't get you a box on the side of the road and this is a, pro a part of a broader criticism uh, of the federal government the federal government's slow to respond to local conditions, right? So let's just say, for instance, you live in a community where all of a sudden the price of housing, both in terms of home ownership and renting, goes up dramatically in a short period of time. The Section 8 program, again, it comes from the federal government, may not be responsive okay, for a year or a year and a half or two years, right? Right. So the value of the voucher is non-responsive to the change in the local conditions. So your share as the individual, okay, might go up dramatically. And what does that do in regards to your, you know, family financial situation while you wait for the federal government to respond to the change in the local conditions. Right. right. Okay. Right. We've noticed that not just with this program, but also with um, EBT and WIC, yes. they don't always respond as quickly to the, to inflation yes. as they should. And so, you know, if your EBT doesn't go up, but prices go up, you just don't have as much food. And that's not a cool thing either, right? Like the government is not so great at well, I mean, at the time we are recording this podcast episode, uh, listeners, uh, the previous week, uh, the federal government announced that senior citizens who are on Social Security are going to receive one of their largest cost of living increases, okay, in the history of Social Security next year. Next year. <laughs> but inflation... <laughs> Has been it is happening issue, now. <laughs> it is happening now and has been an issue in the United States for well over a year. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I'm like, we'll get you next year. I'm like, okay, well, you know, if we're still alive, that'd be great. Thanks. Okay. And, 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 and again, our longstanding listeners know this. Um, <laughs> me and I have plenty of family members who are on Social Security. Okay. Right. Um, they have been kind of sort of waiting for the cost of living increase. Okay. So they can go ahead and pay for their share of prescription drugs, doctor's visits, right? Okay, et cetera. And in our families, we're very fortunate that the kids can help. Yes, yes. But that is not always the case. I mean, yes. if you're a low-income family, you're probably not going to be able to help your parents until that COLA kicks in. Yeah, it's a little frustrating. I want to also mention something that you put in your notes that I think is an extremely good point. And that is that Section 8 vouchers tend to concentrate low-income families in certain neighborhoods. Yes. And it's the neighborhoods of, of where uh, 
land uh, landlords will will rent to Section 8 housing. So it tends to be that those areas are concentrated. And as you were saying earlier, because they're concentrated, they have less power. Yes, they have. They're not. They they're they can be dismissed in some ways more easily because they are in one spot in the city. So we just ignore that spot in the city or we yes, and or we it, give lip service to that spot, but we don't do anything about the actual problems there. And that connects to another criticism of the federal government's housing programs, which is they have given either federal agencies or through the receipt of grant money, state and local governments, the authority, NIA, to revitalize, okay? Right. Um, slums, okay? And what we're talking about is the government's power of eminent domain, right? Wait, we can tear this thing down. For the collective. Right. Okay, but in the process, whose homes, okay, tend to be, whether they are rental properties or home, own, homes actually owned, okay, by, you know, families, okay? Right. And those people get shunted off to different places, so they lose community. Yes. It's happening in Richmond because we're doing that in a couple of our, um, I, I wouldn't call them slums because I guess I don't know, I define slum differently, but they are low-income housing areas that are being they're going to be raised and then stuff is going to be rebuilt there and but in the meantime those people are and are losing their community because they've lived there for a long time kids were raised yes. there and now they're getting sent all over the city to different section 8 vouchers and spaces and it destroys the the fabric of the community it destroys Sort of, and then what you get after that is gentrification, right? Because now you have a nice new building and people want to move into the neighborhood and build a store or do whatever. And now you've priced people out of that. That's right. And, that area. And, and by the way, this is one of those criticisms that you actually get agreement by both liberals and conservatives, right? Because for liberals, okay, these are, you know, people without voice, okay, who are basically being treated poorly by the government. And for conservatives, it's this idea of property, right? You're talking about families who have lived in these communities, uh, Nia, for decades, in some cases, multiple generations, okay? And they can't afford to live there anymore. They're having their property taken away because you have a, a local government that is saying, we want to revitalize this area of our city. Right. Okay. Um, and they can do it because according to the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the takings clause, right? The government can take your property for public use as long as the government gives you just compensation. Well, and market value of your property right now is low because it's a low income area. That's market right. property of your value in 10 years when that's all built up and gentrified yeah, that's would right. be five times that, but they don't have to pay you that. 
they only have to pay you what it's worth now it's a it's a bit of a system i don't i don't like that part of it Um, i like the general idea that we should be helping people and we should be helping people who want to own a home get into one in a reasonable and and um financially fiscally safe manner but but section eight i have big problems with because i think it just and and, i think it harms the people who use it i think it harms landlords i think it harms cities i I just i don't think it's a i i don't have a better solution so i'm one of those people who's complaining without a solution so take that as you will but but again you and i both know this the first step of correcting a problem is recognizing that there is a problem right okay and and section eight is a problem yeah but before we before we we pop out for the end of this episode i do want to ask you am i correct that isn't wasn't mitch romney's i mean wasn't his dad yes uh uh mitt mitt not mitch mitt romney sorry um, wasn't his dad, he was like governor of something, and then he was HUD? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Mitt Romney, uh, the current senator, uh, one of the senators from Utah, former presidential candidate uh, for the Republican Party. Uh, Mitt's father, I mean, politics is the family business for a lot of the Romneys. Mitt's father was, I believe, uh, a former governor of what, Michigan, right? Right. Okay. He was also, okay, appointed by Nixon to run HUD. Yes. So, and we have another um, legacy secretary, dynasty. I like how you put in here uh, a political dynasty because that's how we think of the Kennedys. That's how we think of of, um, Rockefellers. Yes, right. Um, um, And uh, the Bushes now. They've had a political dynasty. Yes. Um, President Carter appointed, I love. <laughs> I, that's why I want you to say it. I love his name. Moon Landrew, okay. <laughs> Moon. Um, which was part of the Landrew political family dynasty in the fine state of Louisiana. Yeah, his daughter was governor during Katrina. Okay. And I believe a former senator at, uh, at one point, or, or, or one of the family members was, right? right? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> what's interesting, and, and I verified this because I actually went through and looked at um, uh, 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 on the HUD website. One third of the 18 HUD secretaries have been persons of color. It's probably been the most diverse. Okay. Um, uh, uh, a pool of cabinet secretaries for one cabinet of all of the cabinet departments. That's interesting. I wonder why. I really do believe that you will see this with the cabinet departments that focus on social welfare. Okay. That they're folks of color. I know that there's a lot of there's been a lot of females yes haven't they're relatively speaking i mean carla compared hills, to other yeah carla hills who was appointed by ford patricia harris also um appointed by carter um 
And uh, in, in terms of, of, of uh, secretaries of color, uh, Bush 43, Mel Martinez and Alfonso Jackson uh, for Clinton. Um, his first one was Henry Cisneros. And, oh, I remember Cisneros. Yes, and his political career came to a crashing halt because of an uh, extramural affair scandal. Yes, because yes, of yep. scandal. Yes. Uh, you want to talk about uh, family legacies? Andrew Cuomo. Oh, right. Name ring a bell? Right. Of all the Cuomos, Mario and Andrew, and yes. Andrew was the son of Mario, the former governor of New York. And Andrew, uh, I believe, became also governor of New York. And he had to resign because of... Extramarital. Well, no, he wasn't married. No. Um, but uh, he had uh, he had uh, harassment concerns. Yes, 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 yes. And his brother had to resign from CNN. Because he was giving um, um, uh, private, secret um, advice and counsel. <laughs> right, about to what brother, to do about your well, While he was reporting on the story <laughs> for CNN. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, uh, we chuckle, but, um, it, but political dynasties do that, right? You have, you have good members of that dynasty and you have bad members of that dynasty. Not bad, but you have less corrupt and more corrupt i don't know how you'd say it whatever but the thing about political dynasties is that because they've been in office and in power for so long they begin to at times consider behavior which for many of us would be viewed as inappropriate or unacceptable they view it as appropriate and acceptable. Yeah, right? I think they come to believe that maybe the law does not fully apply to them. Apply to them, yes, right. I, I that, think that that's not a not an unusual. And that's always thing. been a, that's always an issue when you have a dynasty or a legacy in a democratic nation. Right. Okay. Is that people become used to yes certain uh, yeah. certain yeah. privileges? Let's put yep. it that way. But. Um, what I think that should be taken away from this whole HUD um, department is that HUD really does try to do good work. There has been graft, there has been fraud and corruption, because there is graft, fraud, and corruption in every single agency. Yes. But you can't find one where there hasn't been some sort of scandal. But when you think about what what the point of 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 making sure that people are housed in some way is, yeah, an, I mean, is an enormously important thing that that we I think that most people believe that some sort of housing is a human right, right? Like if you're unhoused, we should as a society attempt to find a way to house you, unless you just don't want to be housed, in which case we shouldn't force you. But but we should make sure that you have that opportunity to be out from the elements, to be, yeah, you know, I mean, to be yeah. cared for in some way. You know, Nia, to your point, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. You know, one of the most basic. Is okay, shelter. Is shelter, right? How can you go ahead and accomplish anything in your life if every day you don't know. Where you're going to sleep. 
Yes. Okay. Right. It's and especially to... terrifying for parents. Yes. Right. The, okay. the one thing that you think you're going to, you should be able to provide for your kid is a safe place to sleep. So, I mean, and, and as somebody who has been homeless, I can go ahead and attest those weren't my best days and they weren't my best years. Right. Right. Um, not knowing, you know, where I was going to sleep. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and it, it consumed so much of my days, right? Okay. Right. Intellectually, it consumes all your energy trying I mean, to figure out where you're you know, going to go, what yeah, you're going to, I was going to go. I mean, right. it was impossible to go ahead and do well in school because I was exhausted, right? right? Just trying to survive. Um, and I think a lot of people don't understand you know, that when you're homeless, no matter what, how you got there, okay, it's no way to live. I mean, right. And blaming people and saying it's their fault doesn't solve the problem. We need no. to solve the problem. Problem. Yes. So, so, so HUD, we're, we're here for you, baby. Yes. Um, and Augie, you and I will get together and talk again about another agency. Third department. That's right. <laughs> Okay. Oh, department, not agency. Yes. Oh, wow. I mean, and I'm loving this series, right? I mean, Me too. I, I like how we're sh we're showing the building of the American um, way of life. Life, yes. Through the departments and how they're created. Okay. And when I hear people say the government is non-responsive, all I want to go ahead and do is, well, you ought to take a look at the cabinet departments because they frequently responded to a specific public policy problem and whether or not we've done a good job responding to is it is a whole separate issue. <laughs> okay. But, okay. At, but we've tried to respond. We've tried. Okay. Maybe not always successfully, but so many of these departments, it, it, as you pointed out, as the country grew and changed and evolved. Okay. We got the government who's thrown that spaghetti against the wall, trying to yeah. see if it's going to stick. We right? didn't even know we needed this thing, but now that we know, we're going to go get this thing. Yes. So, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. All right. We'll talk again soon. All right. See you. Thanks. Then. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.